Good morning. Sorry, I got behind. I was just standing back there hanging out. Having a good time worshiping, talking with Andrew. And I realized, oh, it's time to go up front here and preach the word of God. So um, I want to ask you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And that's where we're going to be this morning. And before we get uh, get into it too thick here, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us um, learn from his word. So let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for um, this morning. And I thank you for the snow that has come. And uh, it is a reminder of your grace. Uh, I know not everybody feels that way, but it is. Uh, just as the, the rain and the snow fall from heaven, and do so to accomplish the purpose for which you sent them. They remind us that uh, the word, the word of God that proceeds from you, um, will also accomplish its purposes. So we're reminded of your grace this morning, Lord, as we see the way you sustain us, as we see your power and your ability to uh, hold this world together and yet uh, give us exactly what we need. God, I ask this morning that as we, we come to your word, uh, that we would be attentive, that we would listen, that we would hear what you would have to say to us. I pray that we would be uh, touched by your grace um, as, we remi- uh, as we remember what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, so, Lord, help us now. Help us to study well. Help us to learn. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are again, we're in First Thessalonians 2. Uh, starting in uh, verse 1, we'll go through verse 16 this morning uh, in our series, Steadfast, The Way to Wait for the Lord's Return, which is really the theme of the book of Thessalonians. And the title this morning uh, of the sermon is Black-Eyed Church. Black-Eyed Church. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I think one of the major obstacles today to sharing our faith with others or to witnessing uh, for Christ is the credibility problem that exists within the church. Uh, there are plenty of charlatans or imposters out there that have used the platform of ministry for their own personal means, their personal gain, personal glory, uh, financial benefit. Uh, there are plenty of people who have claimed the name of, of Christ and yet have have shamed the church and shamed their savior with various acts of immorality. And it doesn't take too long uh, for many of those kinds of stories to come to mind. Uh, In the last decade, we've all heard uh, of a lot of the different abuses uh, within the Catholic church that have come to light. Um, We, we all know of the story of Jim Baker and Tammy Faye and all that took place there. We have heard of stories about wackos, uh, like David Koresh, who have used their personality and their charisma and um, their influence to manipulate people into destructive things. Uh, we have seen people, uh, prosperity gospel preachers, who have used the platform of ministry for themselves uh, to become rich and wealthy and hold that promise out to others, which is, of course, false teaching. Uh, in fact, there's a new reality show on TV. I don't know if you've seen this yet or not. Another reality show. Imagine that. Uh, Preachers of L.A. I'll let you research that on your own. Uh, but it is a prosperity gospel 
that they are preaching. And I don't know how these guys signed themselves up for this. Uh, they are um, charlatans. They are imposters. They are bilking people out of money, and they are doing it openly and wantonly. And, um, and they're showing it as entertainment. So one of the problems for Christians today, and I know you all feel it as I do, is that really under this word Christian, we all get sort of lumped together with all of the knuckleheads out there uh, under the name of Christian. We're linked together with everything from crusades to Nazi Germany to the Klan to modern day prosperity preachers, wackos and big hair folks on TV. I say that with a chip on my shoulder. Uh, And it's gotten to the point that I think all of us cringe a bit to maybe even call ourselves Christians because of what is often associated with that. Happy to be identified with Jesus, our Savior. Um, it's the other Christians we cringe about, right? Have you seen the t-shirt? It says, God save me from your followers. If I had it, I would be wearing it this morning. Uh, I think we probably all feel like there's, we're aware of this credit, credibility problem that we have, sort of this black eye of the church. And I think um, many of us might feel like it's just a 21st century problem. But in reality, what we see is that it was a problem even for the early church, even for the Apostle Paul in the first century. As he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians, he is encountering with their experience some charlatans who have come in after him and misled them and distorted the gospel and made people suspect about the truth of God's word and about what was being proclaimed about Christ. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter back to them, finds the need to basically defend the integrity of his own ministry uh, in the midst of a suspicious climate. And I think that by doing so, he actually gives us two tools that we can be attentive to, uh, to help us both proclaim and to receive the ministry of the gospel in a suspicious climate. And that's really the two things we're after this morning. How do we deliver the gospel message to people in an age of suspicion? And how do we continue to receive good news from the word of God and the gospel? How do we receive that in a climate uh, of abuse? Um, first, the, the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians has been called by many as a, a manual for ministry. And I want to clarify at the outset here, when I use the word ministry or ministers at this point, from this point on in the message, I'm not, I'm not referring to uh, pastors or those employed to do ministry. The Bible says that we are all ministers of the gospel. Everybody here. And so as I, as, I'm, as I continue on, as I'm talking about ministry and ministers, I'm talking about all of us. Pastors are to equip people for the work of ministry. You guys are the front lines. And we're just supposed to be here to sort of get your back, so to speak. Uh, but we're all ministers of the gospel. And so that's I, I want to just make that clear as, um, as I go forward here. The, the message that Paul delivers is, for all of us. And so the first thing that we see is this. Paul basically tells us how do we deliver the gospel message in a climate of suspicion? How do we deliver the gospel message in a climate of suspicion? And the first thing I would say is by faith. That is, we trust the Lord for results. We trust the Lord for our results. Let me show you what I mean by this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without a results. Or as, as the NIV, some of your translations may, may have, was not without fa- or was not a failure. It was not a failure. Uh, 
We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Uh, In other words, I think what we need to learn here is that we don't measure the success of our ministry by continuing to measure observable metrics. Uh, and if we continue to do that, if we look if we look for sort of evidence of success and measurable outcomes, we're going to be disappointed. And, and I think what Paul is basically encouraging, uh, what, what he is reminding them and what he's encouraging us to do uh, is to, to tend to a ministry that is simply faithful. To be faithful and to trust the results to God. I think it would have been very easy for many people to look at the Apostle Paul's ministry at this point and to determine it to be a failure. He may, he may have uh, faced that accusation, in fact. If you think about his first missionary journey, which we were told about, it concluded in Acts 15, it ended with conflict, right? Uh, we're told that he and Barnabas, his ministry partner, parted company. And so then they formed a new ministry team. We have Paul, Silas, and Timothy, at, at, who we have here ministering in, in Thessalonica. But we're told that before they came to Thessalonica, their stop just before that was in Philippi, and they received strong opposition there and strong opposition actually what happens was they were beaten and they were incarcerated until god sprung them from jail with a pretty significant earthquake then they come to thessalonica and as i showed you a couple weeks ago in Acts 17 we saw that they just kind of got things going they they came into the synagogue and they proclaimed to people who were looking for the messiah that jesus who had come was this messiah that they were waiting for and that he had to suffer because that was sort of the catch they were looking for a powerful figure a leader and jesus didn't match the description and so paul had to show them and convince them no the messiah that we've been expecting had to suffer He was a suffering servant, as Isaiah 53 tells him. And so as he begins to get this message across, they begin to get some traction. Things are starting to roll, and then they face opposition again in Thessalonica. Remember, as the King James Version captured it, certain lewd fellows of a baser sort were gathered together and formed a mob and basically uh, threatened them to the point that they had to leave the city. So Paul and Silas continue on to Berea. And you think, okay, we're we're just going to keep on. We're going to be faithful. And these certain lewd fellows of a baser sort followed them to Berea. And they had to leave there as well. And so I, I think it would have been very easy for Paul to just look around and look at all of the observable metrics and say, this is a bust. This is a failure. We can't even stay in a city. And minister over time. What a flop. I think it would have been easy for him to feel like a failure. But instead what he shows us is. He understands that they were not a failure. And what he seems excited about. Or what he seems to call success. Was not results but rather faithfulness. We were steadfast. We continued. We dared to tell you the gospel. In the face of strong opposition. And that's how he comforts himself. And so I wanted to. I don't know where you're engaged in ministry. I don't know what you might be tempted to look at. As a sign of your success. Or to try to uh, encourage your efforts. But be careful. In looking at miserable outcomes. To authenticate your effectiveness. Paul died in a prison cell. For the gospel. 
And yet you and I are continuing to read his epistles today. Jesus died on the cross. And yet you and I have been forgiven by his death. And given the great hope of eternity in heaven. Reconciled to God because of his death. And so we have to be careful not to look at outcomes as the sign of success. But rather our faithfulness. And we need to leave the results to God. In fact, I would tell you this. I think, I want to tell you, you never know the impact of your ministry. You just never know. You don't know. You don't know how far it's reaching. You don't know. And I think God designs it that way. I believe he obscures from our knowing the impact that we're having. Uh, I think if we did know, we would, because we are that sort of folk, grab the praise and be puffed up in pride and think well of ourselves and less of God. I believe God hides our success from us so that he receives the glory and that we do not. So how do we deliver the gospel message to people in a climate of suspicion? We're faithful. We do our work and we trust the results to God. And the Apostle Paul secondly goes on to show that we do it with proper motives. Proper motives. Verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from anyone excuse me, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. And so here we see that basically Paul's going to state the positive case. In other words, he's going to say, this is what our ministry ought to be motivated by. This is how we ought to do it. But before he gives us the positive case, he's going to show us the negative. He's going to show us all the things that should not be indicative of our ministry. And he basically lays them out. I think they're pretty self-explanatory, and I'm not going to unpack them too much because I think it's fairly obvious. Not self-serving. I think this is almost an umbrella for the whole list. If you see, if you observe a ministry that is honoring a person other than Jesus Christ, you have a false ministry on your hands. And Paul lays this out here. It wasn't self-serving. He goes on, it wasn't deceitful. We weren't using flattery. It wasn't driven by greed. And we weren't seeking praise from others. And so these are, all of these things I think are markers of False faith, false ministry, self-serving efforts, charlatans, imposters, those who would use the mantle of ministry for their own glory. Uh, and I think on one hand, we look at this and we say, yeah, this is, this is obvious. This is elementary, right? Of course we would spot these things. And as we look at church history all around us today, we see that many have used the mantle of ministry to do just these kinds of things for self-promotion, for personal gain, for greed, in fact, it's, it's become such a problem, sort of the black eye of the church, as I'm calling it, has become such a problem that churches have considered how they could change their perception in the eyes of the world. I even heard of a church, maybe some of you have heard of this, uh, they were so concerned with the reputation that the church was just a, play, a place that took money from generous, well-meaning people, uh, that they decided to do a reverse offering. Have you heard of this? Uh, they basically took uh, the offering plates and they filled them with cash and they told the congregation beforehand, if you're in need, we would ask you to simply take what you need. 
I'm not saying we're going to do that this morning, <laughs> but, um, but it proves the point. That is the integrity problem that we have. That is the black eye that the church has. And in contrast, what Paul is doing here is he's showing how he and his ministry companions um, were not this sort of person. In fact, he, he goes on to call them approved men. We were approved. Uh, and I want to just basically ask the question, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that, that the Apostle Paul and Silas were approved? Is he, is he talking about some credentials that he and Silas have? Is he talking about some education that he might have? The Apostle Paul was trained uh, under the Pharisee Gamaliel, a brilliant instructor. Is that what he's claiming? Is he talking about that? Is he talking about the commissioning that they had received from the church in Antioch who sent them out on the mission field? Is he talking about the skills they possess? We're reading the epistles of Paul today. The man had writing skills. Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about the vision of the Lord that he had on the road to Damascus? When the resurrected Christ appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is that what he's talking about? In what ways do they know themselves to be approved men? And I think the answer might surprise you, but the approval that Paul speaks of here actually stems from the steadfastness of their ministry. It's not any of these credentials or these education or special training or special calling or any of these kinds of things but rather it stems from their faithfulness, from their steadfastness in spite of opposition and persecution and struggle. The Greek word here for approved is the same Greek word that's later used uh, for tests. It's dokomatsio. And in the first usage, it's in the past tense, translated approved. We were tested and approved. And then he goes on to say, um, we are not trying to please people, but God who continues to test. Same word. So do you see, it's, it's been the opposition, the struggle, the persecution, the difficulties that have come into their life. And as they have continued to push past them, they have approved themselves to be genuine in their ministry by God who continues to test their hearts. It's not anything special they have except that they were steadfast and they stuck with it. Um, when I was um, a junior, actually my sophomore, junior, and senior year in college at Biola University, um, I was an RA. Um, someone asked me after first service what an RA is, so uh, residence life staff, residence assistance, uh, if you don't know. And uh, I was an RA, and I really liked um, that role. I, I don't think I ever find anybody in three years that I was there. Uh, what I liked about it was it was sort of an opportunity for me to exercise my pastoral heart. Uh, I really genuinely loved the guys on my floor, and I got to get to know them and care for them and uh, tried to encourage them, and I'm sure I made mistakes in that as well. But um, one day I came back uh, from the cafeteria uh, after lunch, and I was coming down the hallway in my dorm, and there at, at the bottom of my door was a pile of fruit, and not nice and neatly wrapped up in a package as though it were a gift. Um for whatever reason, and I don't know why, I don't know who, but for whatever reason, some guys on the floor decided that they would leave the cafeteria with armfuls of fruit, and somewhere down the hall, they would each take turns winding up and hurling their fruit down the hallway at my door so that it would explode and just lay there in a broken heap at the bottom of the door. So when I came back and saw this 
fruit basket. Um, I did not feel loved and encouraged or appreciated uh, or effective. Uh, I felt quite frustrated. And I remember lamenting to the guy who was mentoring me at the time, Don Allen. I went to him and I said, you know, Don, you really want to see the fruit of your ministry. <laughs> but not piled up at the bottom of your door. You know? And he, of course, laughed at that a little bit and uh, ministered to me for a bit. Um, I don't know that I interpreted it very well at the time or processed it very well. But as I look back, I see it as a gift from God. Because it was a test for me. I had to look at that situation and say, am I in this for the approval of men? Do I care for and serve and minister to other people because I want to be thought well of? Is this about me or is this about the honor and the glory of Christ? And again, I don't think I processed it well at the time, but as I look back, I see it as a gift. The best thing I think I did was, by God's grace, just continue on. And I think that's what he wanted me to do. I don't know what you're facing right now. If you're staring at adversity, uh, you got a setback. It's frustrating. You throw your hands up and say, Lord, uh, why this? Maybe it's just one of those tests to reveal your heart. Something you need to push through. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. We were approved men. How were we proved? Because we were tested and we went through it. That's how we know. And he goes on to tell us uh, what not only our motives, but he goes on to show us our method, a proper method. This is how we do ministry in a suspicious climate, not only by faith, not only with proper motive, but with proper method. And he gives us just some brilliant pictures here in verses 7 through 12. He says, instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Isn't that a sweet verse? I mean, here's somebody saying, you know us. You know who we are. You know how we've lived among you. You know that we didn't just thump you on the head with a message. But we lived it out with integrity among you. You know us. You know our hearts. You know who we are. He goes on in verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I think Paul gives two great pictures here that really, they they fit under the general description in ministry as relational. They're relational. That's what he says. We, We weren't just content driven, but we were relational among you, like a mother and like a father. And he gives these two great word pictures. The first, he kind of shows that we were nurturing like a mother. And I think there are a few pictures that are more intimate and selfless uh, as a mother who is nursing her baby. It is an act of sacrifice. Um, Many times a night, I'm told, because, you know, (laughs) I slept through a lot of that. Um. Yeah, I'm going to avoid that whole <laughs> that whole piece there. Um, we know 
we know from scientific studies today a lot of what actually transpires between mother and child in that time of nursing. And those of you who have researched that and are far more intelligent on these areas know more than I did, more than I do, about how that connection, that emotional bond is formed between a mother and her nursing infants. It's, it's, an, it's an incredibly nurturing thing that happens there. We know all of the benefits uh, of nursing too and, and uh, it's become quite a, quite a thing in our culture today. I don't know that Paul knew all of these things. I don't think he had these studies at his fingertips. But he could at least observe the connection that occurs here and the selfless act that a mother gives to her child as she nurses them along. And that's the picture he gives of ministry. He says, we were nurturing among you like a, like a mother. And there's a lot of aspects of ministry that are that way. When we first give the milk of the gospel to somebody, right? We share with them the good news that Christ came for your sins. He died in your place so that you could be forgiven. To reconcile you to God. And we come alongside somebody and we help them read the Bible couple thousand page book what in the world is it all about and we gently walk with them through the very basic steps of how to read it and understand it and come to know what it means and maybe we teach somebody how to pray how to talk with god and we pray for them and as questions emerge whether they're theological or whether they're driven by life we help them walk through and wrestle through their questions and we do a lot of listening and we share food and resources, and whatever we have to serve those that we love. We listen to their concerns. We hear them when they repent of their sin, and we assure them they have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Um, It's very nurturing. It's the selfless act, this motherly act of nurturing people along in, in their faith. And much of ministry is this way. But ministry is not all nurturing. It's not always tender. Sometimes it's tough, too. And that's the other picture that the Apostle Paul sort of balances this out with. Uh, he assures them, hey, the way we, the way I and Silas were with you, we acted in a nurturing, compassionate, tender-hearted, relational way, the way a mother does for a child. But we also were tough with you too. There were times we taught you, exhorted you, encouraged you, like a father might. And that's the second part. Nurturing like a mother, exhorting like a father. The NIV chooses a softer word here for parakaleo. They, it chooses the word encourage. If you have the NIV, I think it's too soft. The NAS, the King James, uh, the ESV all choose the stronger word exhort, which I think is more accurate of what Paul is trying to do here. He's showing a contrast. He's showing the full spectrum of the way ministry happens, that it's at times tender and nurturing like a mother, and it is at times tough and challenging like a father. The full spectrum of ministry. He says we did both uh, among you as we encourage you along in your your walk with God. And I think there's a great application for us in this. As we encourage people along in their walk with the Lord, we have to discern those moments when we need to be nurturing and sensitive and tender with them. And we have to discern those moments when it's time to be tough and to challenge and to exhort and to confront and to urge and to push. We have to discern the moment. And so Paul gives us, I think, just a brilliant tool here on how we extend ministry to others in a suspicious climate. And overall, he's advocating, he's defending the integrity of his own ministry, and he reminds us that we do it by faith, 
trusting God for the results. We do it with right motives, which are not self-serving, but honoring to the Lord. And we do it with right methods, which are relational, tender like a mom and tough like a dad. Um, The next tool that he gives us basically is this. How do we receive the message of God? How do we receive the gospel message and the good news in a climate that is corrupt? Um, Remember, just as he had defended the integrity of his ministry to the Thessalonians, he's also aware of the fact that there are charlatans around there. There are imposters. There are those that have followed behind him and are misleading uh, folks behind him. And so he kind of gives a corrective of how we receive the gospel message of God. Look at verse 13. He says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered for your, from your own people the same things those church, churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. And the wrath of God has come upon them at last. A couple of things here. The first thing is this. We need to be willing to hear. Uh, I think very many of you, uh, or some that may be listening uh, online, maybe you have become so suspicious um, of churches, of pastors, of those who claim the name of Christ but seem to use everything for their own selfish ends that you have difficulty even listening any longer. And you have grown weary of maybe even unwilling to hear. And I think the Apostle Paul gives us a good reminder here that we just need to continue to be willing to listen. The men and women who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to us are just flawed and broken people. We are human vessels. Uh, I think there's a great encouraging word that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Just beautiful, right? And he goes on to say, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, we're just very human, flawed, broken instruments who happen to be privileged to know the great light of Christ. And we blow it and we make mistakes. We're flawed, each and every one of us. We're jars of clay. What a great picture. Just earthen vessels, jars of clay, and we make mistakes. And there, it actually seems to me that, the, that God allows human brokenness to happen so that no person would get the credit for the work that he is doing. Does that make sense? In the sovereignty of God, I think he allows these kinds of mistakes and these kinds of things to happen, as offensive as they are, so that we would never look at a person and say, they're my hero. But rather, we would continue to look at Christ and say, he is the hero. But we need to be willing to continue to hear the message of God, even if we've gone through disappointments. We need to identify the source of someone's message as well. As we're listening to someone proclaim to us the word of God, 
or the gospel, we need to have some good questions on our mind. We need to listen critically to what they're saying. We need to be willing to ask, who is being honored here? Who is the beneficiary of glory in this particular message? Who is being promoted? Who is being served? Who is being given the place of prominence? If it is a self-serving message, a self-serving ministry, then you know it to be false. 1 John 4, 1 says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Here's how, folks, listen. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Now, let me let me just add a little comment to that. Plenty of people have stood on a stage or proclaimed something in the name of Christ, right? Only to lie. So it's not just the words. It's not a words only thing. I can't wave the magic wand of the name of Christ. And this is suddenly a pure and uh, ministry of integrity, right? But it has to bear itself out over time. Does it honor the name of Christ in every respect? Or is it a ministry of a self-serving ministry? So we need to test. We need to, we need to identify the source of someone's message. If it's honoring Christ or if it's honoring someone else. And then also we need to test to see if it's true. In Acts 17, there's a great story here. Remember, after Paul is kicked out of Thessalonica, he moves on to Berea because of these... Uh, these lewd men of a baser sort, certain lewd fellows of a baser I just love that phrase. I want to start a band with that name. Certain lewd fellows of a baser sort. These guys ushered them out of Thessal- uh, Thessalonica and then chased them out of Berea. But, but when Paul was in Berea, he gave a compliment to these folks that heard his message there that he didn't actually give to the Thessalonians. Uh, it's found in Acts 17 at verse 10. It says this. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Again, this is because of the conflict they were facing there. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, as was their custom. And now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than the, than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness. And what? They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul and Silas said was true. And so as well as he thought of the Thessalonians, he gave a compliment to the Bereans. He said, you guys checked me. You were still eager to hear the message, but you checked it. And you went back to the scriptures and you said, is it true? Does it bear itself out in the word of God? And I want to challenge you folks with this. When we hear people proclaim any message claiming the name of Christ, we need to check it with the scriptures to see if it's true. Uh, we have an incredible privilege that comes out of the Reformation. That is that we have the Bible in our own language in the translation of our choice, in the Bible cover of our choice, sitting in our laps so that we can check to see if what is being said is true. And it seems to me that we neglect this more now than ever. And I want to encourage you, you need to check me. I love to study the word of God. I love to proclaim it to you on Sundays, but I'm a flawed person and I make mistakes. And anybody standing here or anybody claiming the word of God to you needs to be checked. You need to go back to the scriptures and see if what they're saying is true. That's the compliment that Paul gave to the Berean fellows. And then also, more than that, it needs to be at work within you. 
The word of God is not just a book of information. It's a book of transformation. You're supposed to get it in your life and let it transform who you are and form you into the person of Jesus Christ. His, his character and his person formed in you. Verse 13, he says, And we thank God also, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And I think maybe one of the best ways I've heard it summarized that we can do this, I'm going to give you this little saying, is this. Read it through, pray it in, live it out, pass it on. It's the way we live with the word of God. It's not just content. It's not just information. It doesn't just get dumped into our head and then sit there and puff us up. But we read it through. We pray it into our lives. And then we live it out. It's to transform us. And then we pass it on to others. So we need to let the word of God work within us. Ephesians 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And the last thing that Paul talks about here, and I don't really have time to go into it, and for some reason I can't make this slide go. It doesn't want to do it, Andrew. First service, same problem. Basically, as we do these things, to be steadfast in our struggles. We're going to face persecution. We're going to face opposition. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians that as you face these things, guess what? You're in good company. Because the other churches have faced the same kind of opposition. You're going to suffer for the name of Christ. And when you do so, remember you're in good company. And so I think there's just a, just a great summary here. Two things that we can do to make sure uh, that, in a, that in a climate of suspicion and abuse, that we continue to hear the word of God and receive it correctly. And that as we proclaim it to others, that we do it uh, in a right way in a, in a world that is suspicious. I want to close with the words of C.H. Spurgeon. He said, speaking of a minister, and I'm proclaiming all of us to be ministers here. He said this, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of the living God. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of a living God. Let's pray. Lord, we are all too aware as we look around us that there are many uh, self-serving, self-promoting charlatans and imposters in the church who for for their own glory abuse and misuse and distort the truth to serve their own purposes. We are aware, Lord, that the church at times has a black eye in the community because of these. God, may we be those who are faithful, who continue to proclaim the good news of Christ, trusting results to you. May we have proper motives and good relational methods. May we ourselves be continually open and receptive to the word of God. May we listen well. May we test it. And may we actually get it into our lives so that we will be transformed by it. Give us courage and ability to be steadfast in the midst of opposition because we know, Lord, that when it comes, those are opportunities to be tested and to be approved as those who are really about you and your glory and not our own. Help us do these things, Lord, for your name and for your sake. Amen.